thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine with me, Chris Smith, and with Sally LePage. This week, as UK cases surge, should COVID precautions move to plan B? How does raw sewage affect our waterways? And is your mobile phone damaging your finger? Spooky stuff. Plus, since we are recording this programme on Halloween, we are wandering into the weird world that is spiders. We'll be looking at spiders that can fly using little silk parachutes and the grisly and gruesome mating habits of the Black Widow. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, let's kick off with the latest science news stories, as we always do, and to plan B or not to plan B. As COVID cases hit a new high recently, that's the question that's been hogging the headlines this week. Labour has made a stinging attack on the government's COVID strategy and suggested that Sajid Javid is the most complacent health secretary in the history of the NHS. Speaking in the Commons, the Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth highlighted the pressures facing the health service as infection rates rise and said the vaccination programme was stalling. The doctors' union, the BMA, has accused ministers of being willfully negligent by not introducing some coronavirus restrictions in England. Indeed. Some, like Bath University mathematician Kit Yates, think that as the half-term holiday comes to an end, restrictions need to be reintroduced across the board sooner rather than later. I'm worried that when schools do go back that we will see cases rising again and of course that will lead to rises in hospitalisations and unfortunately that will lead to rises in deaths and at the moment we're averaging a rate of death which is equivalent to about 50,000 a year which I think is unacceptably high. And what would you like to see done as a reaction to the present trends? What we could be doing is taking relatively light touch mitigations things like asking people to wear masks in in enclosed public spaces, things like putting mitigations in schools to try to make sure we can mitigate the spread in schools, like ventilation and and filtering. I think there are small things we can be doing, like asking people to work from home, which could all have a big impact on transmission. Cases are not growing that quickly at the moment. The reproduction number is only just above one, which means it's growing quite slowly. And small things we could do now would help us to bring cases down as we head into winter. Indeed, with R just above one, that means the outbreak is growing only very slowly, despite the fact we are all out and about. Cases are also actually now appearing to fall, and so others are quite a bit more sanguine about the situation, like UEA Professor of Medicine Paul Hunter, who favours the status quo. He argues that the answer lies in vaccines and boosters rather than restrictions. More restrictions, he says, might prolong the agony long term, not lessen it. Well, at the moment, it's looking substantially more promising than uh, even a week or so ago. 
case numbers have started to decline, but we are also beginning to see, I think, hospitalizations now starting to plateau. This, to my mind, listening to you, sounds like you're taking a fairly optimistic viewpoint. Yeah, absolutely. We're in a situation where the vast majority of adults, and particularly vulnerable adults, have already had one course of vaccine. But vaccination effectiveness is declining and has continued to decline. On the other hand, recent evidence on the booster vaccine is that it actually is looking substantially more effective at both stopping infections and, more importantly, stopping severe disease than many of us were expecting. Nevertheless, some people are saying that the current caseload translates into tens of thousands of mortalities per year, which some say is unacceptable. How do you read it? What we saw last year was a substantial number of excess deaths driven by large numbers of coronavirus deaths. What we're seeing in the last few months is that, yes, we are still seeing excess mortality. Only a minority of those excess deaths are in people who have recently tested positive for COVID. And it's difficult to know what's driving that. It is plausible that problems around what's called non-pharmaceutical interventions that are actually delaying people getting treatment for heart attacks, or maybe people not actually exercising enough, becoming more sedentary, and that speeding up cardiovascular disease. Some people, including letters penned by significant numbers of members of the medical profession, um, open letters and so on, are calling for the government to put more measures in place to try and head off the surge at the pass ahead, as it were. Do you think that's that's a good idea? Or do you think actually that we should go steady as she goes, which is apparently the government's present policy. They say they have no plans to escalate things. Well, actually, at the moment, the indications are that they're going to review this in a week or so's time. And I think that's the right thing to do. You know, nobody can be absolutely certain what's going to be happening. But the thing about non-pharmaceutical interventions like restrictions is they never prevent infections. And we've known this long before COVID. When you say never but, protect, you mean they don't ever prevent them, but what they do do they, is they, they kick the can down the road. They, they make, they're going to happen anyway. They're just going to take longer yes, to happen. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And, and as Fauci said the other day, you know, people who haven't been vaccinated will get infected. Even those of us who have been infected will almost certainly get repeat infected. Those of us who have been vaccinated will almost certainly get breakthrough infections. And that's because this is a coronavirus. Immunity to infection from coronaviruses are generally quite short-lived. The other coronaviruses typically cause infections every three to six years. What that means is that, okay, if we implement these restrictions now, we might actually suppress the curve a little bit more than it might be going otherwise. But then ultimately, those people still have to have their infection if they've not been boosted. And so these restrictions don't ultimately prevent transmission. They just delay it. And sometimes delaying it is all you need. But once we've got vaccine, as we have at the moment, delaying it paradoxically could make things worse because the longer you have between infections, these endemic infections, initially you lose your immunity to mild infections, then ultimately you lose your immunity 
to severe infections unless you've had a booster from vaccine or an infection in the meantime. So increasing the gap between infections can actually increase mortality. So a bit more short-term pain for less pain in the long term. Paul Hunter there. One of the worrying things about COVID-19 is that in many cases it seems to cause neurological problems such as long-term changes to our sense of taste and smell and so-called brain fog. This suggests that the virus is somehow affecting the brain, although we haven't understood how. Now, a new study has shown that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, can kill the cells called endothelial cells that line the small blood vessels that provide the brain with its oxygen supply. I asked the University of Lübeck's Markus Schwaninger what he thinks is going on. They are tiny tubes. They have a diameter of five micrometers, so 1,000 millimeter in, in diameter. And they consist, the wall consists of endothelial cells. These are the cells that form the wall. But outside of the endothelial cell, there is what is called a basement membrane that attaches the endothelial cells with the environment. So it's a bit like all of these cells are building blocks in the wall and they're all stuck together onto some layer of cement. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And what we found is that uh, endothelial cells are lost in SARS-CoV-2 infected patients and only the basement cement, as you called it, was left over. So what happens when the COVID virus infects these cells that are making up the walls of the blood vessels? Yeah, the cell is compromised because the virus production requires energy from the cell. One strategy of the host is that cells that are infected are committing suicide, so to speak, to support the survival of the whole organism. So if all of the cells that are making up the blood vessels die, what happens to the blood vessel? Yeah, then there would be no blood flow any longer. That would be lethal, that's no doubt. It's only part of the blood vessels that are dying. In the end, the endothelial cell is gone and only the basement membrane would provide some indication that the blood vessel has been there before. So it's like a a ghost vessel that's left over. What brains are you looking at when you're looking for this damage? We looked at the the cortex, the outer part of the brain of patients who died from the disease. Now, surely it can't be very good for the brain when all of the vessels supplying blood to it get destroyed. What does it mean for the brain as a whole and for the person? The blood flow is essential for providing energy and removing waste from the brain tissue. So the effect could lead to stroke-like symptoms, for example. But if the whole brain is affected, it could also lead to confusion, memory loss or or delirium in difficult cases. Things like confusion and memory loss, they're many of the neurological symptoms people get with long COVID and severe COVID infections. Do you think that it's the virus infecting the blood vessels that is causing these symptoms that we see in COVID patients? That's a suggestion that we can make. It could be a cause, but we have to do more investigations to prove this concept because so far we just detected these vascular changes and the next thing to investigate would be to link it to the clinical symptoms. And obviously you can't investigate the brains of people with long COVID because they still need their brains. 
exactly. <laughs> yeah. And now we know that the virus is damaging the brain. Is there anything that we can do to prevent that damage or treat that damage once it's occurred? Preventing would be possible if there are small molecules, drugs that could inhibit this uh, regulated cell death. However, at a later stage, when the damage has occurred, I would assume that it's too late to do anything. Have you found drugs that are helpful in preventing this damage? Yes, we have tested one drug that uh, prevented the vascular damage in a mouse, but this compound would have to be tested in another species, perhaps also hamsters, and then more data is required to see whether the clinical safety is good at all. Is it likely that other viruses also damage the brain vessels in a similar way? Yes, that's a, a good suggestion. I mean, at least in other coronavirus infections like SARS or MERS, it is very likely that neurological symptoms occur through a similar mechanism. So we might not have this drug in time for the current pandemic, but it might be useful in future pandemics. Yes, exactly. Marcus Schwaninger there from the University of Lübeck, and that research has just been published in Nature Neuroscience. From baffling British weather sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, coming up here on The Naked Scientist, is your phone damaging your little finger? And what is it like to research the world's deadliest spiders? We talk to someone with the dubious pleasure of milking venom from them. Indeed, can't wait for that. But first, after a recent controversial vote in the UK Parliament and a subsequent government U-turn, the dumping of untreated sewage into rivers by water companies has gained a lot of attention. Joining us now is Jamie Woodward from the Department of Geography at the University of Manchester to discuss his latest research on how tracking microplastics in the riverbed allows us to monitor the dumping of untreated wastewater. Jamie, why were you looking for microplastics in our rivers? Well, we decided a few years ago that because most of the research on microplastics was focused very much on the ocean, we started thinking about where those microplastics were coming from. So we started looking at UK rivers, particularly rivers in cities where we've got lots of industry and lots of population as a potential source of microplastics into rivers then into the ocean. And what are these microplastics? Where are they coming from? Well, microplastics are pieces of plastic smaller than five millimetres in size, but most of the microplastics we find are much smaller than that, smaller than one millimetre. They're mainly coming from wastewater. So we find fibres from commercial and domestic laundry. We find microbeads from industrial processes. We find fragments of plastics from a range of processes, from road runoff to industrial processes. And they, they mainly enter the river system through wastewater. So every time I wash my synthetic jumper, I'm producing tiny microplastics, but surely they're just going to get filtered out when all of that wastewater gets treated. Well, what we found in our latest work, and this is quite well established in the literature, is that existing wastewater treatments, so water treatment plants, sewage treatment plants in the UK and elsewhere, are actually pretty effective at removing microplastics. They can filter out 99% of the microplastics in wastewater if the wastewater is treated properly. 
we found lots of microplastics in high concentrations on riverbeds. The only way that microplastics can accumulate on riverbeds is if wastewater is being pumped into rivers at very low flows. Oh, I see. So you weren't expecting to see microplastics in there, but it was a sign that the wastewater hadn't been treated properly. Yeah, well, it started. We didn't know. We did a survey and we found high concentrations of microplastics. And then what we found is after flood events, those microplastics were washed away. So identifying that contamination was a new discovery. And then the process of them being washed away by flooding, the nice thing comes out of that is that the rivers will clean themselves. Now, ultimately, those microplastics will end up in the ocean. But then we started thinking to join up the dots. Well, if if floods remove microplastics and, and water companies are only supposed to put wastewater into rivers during high flows in exceptional rainfall, how on earth are the riverbeds getting contaminated in the first place? So the only way you can get high concentrations of microplastics accumulating on a riverbed is if you're putting untreated wastewater into a river when the river's actually at low flow and you haven't got exceptional rainfall. And untreated wastewater doesn't only contain microplastics, it obviously contains faecal bacteria and other horrific things to think about. What harm overall does raw sewage cause to our river ecosystems? Yeah, because everyone's talking about sewage at the moment, sewage in rivers and sewage in the sea. So basically, this is untreated wastewater. So it can contain bacteria like E. coli, for example, that can make humans seriously ill. But also, untreated wastewater can also contain lots of industrial pollutants, toxic chemicals, pharmaceuticals, other bacteria, detergents, pesticides, etc. So there's lots of nasties in untreated wastewater that you don't want in rivers and you don't want them in the ocean. Is this happening just in the UK or is it happening in countries worldwide? This is a global problem. So wherever you've got people living in cities uh, in high concentrations producing wastewater and you've got industry as well, you've got a wastewater issue. So where that wastewater is being treated, that's important. You can reduce the impact, obviously, on rivers and in the marine environment. But there are circumstances when untreated wastewater gets into the river. So this is a global problem, but it's become a particular problem in the UK because some of our wastewater systems are quite old. They're Victorian and the infrastructure hasn't been maintained as it should have been. So we get far too many spills of wastewater into rivers. Indeed, we've been hearing about it a lot. It's been discussed in the House of Lords and the House of Lords even mentioned your research. That must have been quite validating as a researcher. Yeah, well, it's nice to do a piece of research that actually influencing policy and people are talking about. But what we're finding is is the microplastics, when we find them in high concentrations, they're actually can be used as an indicator of poor wastewater management. So microplastics themselves can be used as a diagnostic tool to identify when the water companies are not doing what they should be. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That was Jamie Woodward there and that research was published in Nature Sustainability. What well, is something completely different now. And a viral video that spread across the social media platform TikTok last week. And in it, a girl describes how holding a mobile phone can change the shape and appearance of the little finger. Well-established news sources jumped on the story and alluded to the possibility that smartphone pinky, as the social media user labelled it, could result in long-term permanent damage. And this isn't the first time it's been reported. Articles dating back to 2016 highlight the same phenomenon as well. Here at The Naked Scientist, though, we were a bit surprised by the supposedly reliable expertise that was used in the articles. So we said, the gloves are coming off... And we got Harry Lewis to find out whether we should be changing the way that we carry our mobiles or if these claims are, well, just phony. Come on, Harry, put us out of our misery. Jeez, Chris, just bear with me, would you? Trying to fire off a new tweet. All right, all right, yeah, I'm here now. Yes, the viral video. If you haven't heard it yet, feast your ears on this. Okay, so I was just wondering if anyone else has this. If you hold your phone with your pinky on the bottom of your phone, 
you'll start to notice a little dent between the top and the bottom knuckles on your pinky. This is called smartphone pinky, so duet this if you have this. Oh, and my phone's now telling me that my screen time is up compared to last week as well. Well, let's see if this social media sensation is anything to worry about with Maxim Horwitz, orthopaedic hand and wrist surgeon at Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Maxim, you've seen the viral video. Put me out of my misery. Is smartphone pinky an actual condition? I think smartphone pinky is an actual thing, but it's probably not as prolific or the epidemic which it's been made out to be. If you hold any item for an extended period of time on a regular daily basis, it will make an indentation on your finger. I think I've seen two of these in the last five years. And of the two, one of them had a dent and one of them was a bit sore. And I've asked other colleagues who are specialist hand surgeons who like me only treat fingers and hands, but it's not actually a problem. And none of us have seen nerve compression And that was actually suggested in the news last week. Some popular news outlets suggested that holding your phone in a certain way might be causing damage to something called the ulna nerve. Uh, Where is this nerve in relation to the little finger? I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. So the ulna nerve starts all the way up in your armpit. And there's a couple of places where it can get stuck or where it goes through tight gaps. One of them's at your elbow and one of them's at your wrist what we most of us call the funny bone is actually where the ulnar nerve sits. So more commonly nowadays, if you're holding a smartphone or a tablet in your hand with your elbows bent for more than about 20 minutes without straightening your elbows out, your fingers are going to tingle. So it's not so much the iPhone pushing on your pinky or little finger. It's more the fact that you're keeping your elbow bent and not giving yourself time to stretch your nerve out. And how long have you been a surgeon, Maxim? So I've been a a surgeon for 20 years and only treating hands for the last 12. So over the period of your career, you haven't actually seen an increase in poor hand health due to excessive use of mobile phones? No, I wouldn't say that's correct. I think phones in particular probably do have an effect in that, firstly, people's posture is definitely affected. People bend their necks down, so people get sore necks, sore shoulders. And sometimes it's not just pain. It can cause tingly fingers and arms and hands. But almost all of this can be relieved by giving yourself adequate time to stretch out, give yourself breaks, and probably realize that if you do hold your phone in a funny position, try and modify. Use two hands instead of one. Use a pop-up socket at the back of your phone. Stretch your neck out and make sure that you're holding this thing comfortably. You shouldn't have pain in your hands after holding a phone unless you're doing something really wrong. Okay, so stepping away from mobile phones entirely, are there... Any trends that have sprung up, any day-to-day activities that are putting excessive strains on our hands? A lot of people do plank-type position, downward dog position in yoga, and they don't stabilize their core properly, and all of the weight goes through their wrists. And I see a lot of people with pain and sore wrists. I'm talking about three or four a week. The other one I see a lot of is people who do boxing training, and people are punching without protection on their hands. They're not wrapping their hands. They're not using adequate pads. They're punching heavy bags. And you're getting sprains in the back of the wrist, very rarely fractures and ligament injuries, but just more aches and pains. Well, I can almost guarantee that I'm guilty of not engaging my core when I plank. It's um, very visible from the violent and excessive shaking of my body. 
can't see it myself, Harry. I, I really don't see you doing vigorous exercise. I'm sorry. But uh, thank you very much for the report, though. We enjoyed it very much. And that was Maxime Horwitz, who had some very clear advice. Take breaks, stretch, and make sure you leave your phone well and truly alone every so often. Much has changed for business owners, managers, and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. For the rest of the show, we're going to be talking about spiders as we are recording this episode on Halloween. Arachnophobes, you have been warned. On the way, we go on a spider safari to see what's lurking locally. We talk to the team using spider venom as a source of new drugs. And we're going to hear how some spiders pay the ultimate price when they reproduce. Of course, the first question we've got to ask is, well, what actually is a spider? And thankfully, with us to explain is Nottingham University spider specialist, Sarah Goodacre. Sarah, please put us out of our misery. Well, a spider is an eight-legged creature with a head and an abdomen, and it belongs to the family arachnids, which also has the scorpions and a few other strange and wonderful creatures, and they usually make a whole range of different silks. Spiders make silk, but scorpions don't. When did they gain this ability? We don't know when the ability to make silk actually evolved in the spiders, but we do know they're the only ones that can do it in that family of eight-legged creatures. So if we wind the clock back, how far do we have to go back in evolutionary time to find the first spiders? The first spiders arrived quite a long time ago, around 400 million years or thereabouts. And that's well before insects and other things that you might think arose at around the same time. The spiders are much older. Yes, yeah, well before the dinosaurs, isn't it? Because obviously when one thinks about a spider, you almost always think about spiders' webs and them catching insects. So if they actually predate insects, what did they eat? Spiders, when they first emerged, ate other creepy crawlies, other arthropods. And they mostly trapped those arthropods, either in water, actually, or on land, so they weren't flying. And they used their silks and sometimes to do this, to create sort of trip wires and lines. There are even trapdoor spiders that create a trapdoor that they hide under, and then they sneak out and quickly grab something walking by. What they didn't do early on was make the big orb webs that insects would fly into. Sarah, thank you. A bit more from Sarah in just a few minutes. But first, let's meet the stars of our show. I went to Camborne to visit Brian Eversham, CEO of the Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Northamptonshire Wildlife Trust and a massive spider enthusiast. We ventured out into a grassy bit of the nature reserve to go on our very own spider safari. So next to the path here, we've got medium length grass and what we're looking for are webs between the grasses that is a thick spider. That is a fat body on the wow. underside of that grass. And colourful. So from this angle I can see a bright orange body and pale creamy legs with dark brown bands on them. I'm just going to put my hand underneath there. She's a medium-sized four-spotted orb weaver and she'll be about a centimetre long and fairly heavy. 
Some of her species are the heaviest British spider, and this is the one with probably the strongest silk of any orb weaver, so you definitely walk through a meadow, bump into one of these webs, and it will for a second actually stop you in your tracks. Ah, yes, so she's moving up to a little shelter. She's tied together several bits of grass to form a little curved, almost a dome, and she's now sitting underneath the dome, protected from all sides, and from most angles you can no longer see her. And if I persuade her to drop out of there, we can get a look at her upper side. She's quite a pretty beast. There you go. Oh, look at that patterning. So, four iridescent oh pearly white spots. She's ready to start laying eggs, and in the last three or four weeks, she's probably doubled her weight. So she was quite a svelte and slender lady until she decides now's the time to reproduce, and the body's built for it. Now see if you see a big spider. Oh, I've got a spider. Ooh, and it's moving. Ah, that's one of the very biggest of the money spiders. That's a money spider? That's huge for a money spider. Yeah, so what, six, seven, eight millimetres long and rather pretty. So its basic background colour is dark brown or black, but it's got lovely white zigzag running along the side of the abdomen and probably got striping legs as well. I think that's cute. One reason I can tell it's a money spider, it's sitting on the underside of a sort of hammock web. So the web's strung between branches, the web's almost horizontal, and the spider's resting on the underside of it, basically waiting for insects to fall into it and at which point it will rush in there and bite them. This doesn't have the pretty web that you'd expect. It's more like a tangled sheet. Why is that better for the spider than to have your standard orby web? I don't think it's a matter of being better. It's a matter of doing something that other spiders aren't doing. So most of our money spiders produce this sheet web horizontal to catch things that are falling. Most orb weavers spin a vertical web that catches things flying or bouncing or springing. Brian Eversham from the Wildlife Trust there, and we'll hear more from my spider safari later in the programme. Well, still with us, of course, is Sarah Goodacre, who actually works on money spiders. Do you know why they're called that, Sarah? It's a really good question. So their formal name is the family Linifiidae. They're all typically quite small, although some of them might be slightly larger. And money spiders is the kind of affectionate name that we have for them. What do they eat and how do they eat? Money spiders are really great at eating pests in farmers' fields. They will eat pests in your garden. But the bottom line is they eat a wide range of other invertebrates and occasionally they'll eat each other too. One thing I've noticed about money spiders, and not the bigger ones like Sally and Brian found, I didn't even know they could get that big in fact, but usually it's when they go drifting past me on the breeze because you just see this web go by and there's a spider on the end of it is is that an accident has that spider accidentally got detached and it's now on a lifeline as it were or is this intentional well, I think this is one of the behaviours that is so fascinating about spiders. Baby spiderlings of a wide range of other species, they deliberately take to the air. They use their silk as a sail, they climb to a high point, spin a metre or so of silk, which is quite a lot if you're only one or two millimetres mm. long, think about it. And then the wind catches it. And the key thing is, once they've made the decision to go up, they've got no control over how far they fly. And we think that some money spiders, so the one that you might have seen drifting past you on a summer's day, it may have come from 70 kilometres away. What, how long? Four. 70? And of course, once they fly 70 kilometres, and once they start flying, they might do so again the next day and the next day. And we know that some of them can even cross, probably cross oceans. Uh, because when they land on water, they can take off from there as well and continue their journey. How much silk is actually in a spider, though? Presumably a large amount of the spider's interior is the chemistry that makes silk. 
So spider silk glands are the most amazing little storage organs where they store the liquid silk. They absolutely don't want to become solid inside the spider, but once it leaves the spider, you want a fibre to be formed or a glue because some silks come across as glues. In fact, some spiders spit their silk at each other and spit sticky glue at each other. Some of the silk that we see is incredibly fine. It's a thousand times finer than a human hair. So actually, volume-wise, they've not used as much as you might think to make a really long thread that's a couple of metres long. I did read that people were interested in the medical applications of the silk because obviously it, it is very biocompatible and therefore it, it's likely to be well tolerated. So yes, spider silk is tolerated very well by human cells, unlike silkworm silk, for example, which really isn't. And because of this, we can actually use those properties to make our own artificial versions. And in my lab, in collaboration with chemists, we've actually added extra molecular twists to the artificial spider silk that we make in that we've stuck antibiotics onto the silk as well so that we can make it what as we say even smarter than the spiders itself how does that work then and why why would you want to stick antibiotics onto the silk well, what we think is that the silk might be useful in medical applications. And of course, one of the great challenges of the 21st century is, is microbes, bacteria, that really can infect wounds and cause all sorts of problems. And the clever thing here is that if we can take some of the properties that we want of a spider silk mesh or film, whatever it is we want to produce, and we can add the properties such as antimicrobial, antibacterial activity by sticking an antibiotic on, we can also make it such that the antibiotic only comes off and does its job when there are bacteria active. So we're making materials that are really smart, if you like, that really work for what we need in a medical application and yet are inspired by and really built upon the natural world around us and the inspiration that it's given. So what sort of application would one of these antibiotic laden silks have? Where would you deploy it? So we think that we would use antibiotic silk in something like tissue regrowth or tissue regeneration. One of the key things is you don't just have to stick antibiotics onto it. You could stick growth factors that act as little signals and direction lines for uh, cells to grow along. And so really, it's up to the user. What is it you would like your silk to have as an extra function? We know it can be sticky or stretchy. We know it's biodegradable. We know it's see-through. We know it's strong. We know it's fine, etc. What else do you want it to have? And if you want it to be antibacterial, if you want it to tell cells how to grow, all of these really are medical applications that we think will just give medics a different set of options for treating whatever condition it is that they're working on. If you think about how diverse the spider family is as a whole, probably there's a whole heap more inspiration in there just waiting to be discovered. And in fact, we're going to hear about a bit more of that later in the programme when we hear what researchers in Australia are doing with spider venom. Sarah, thank you very much. That's Sarah Goodacre from the University of Nottingham. Ah, isn't spider's silk just amazing stuff? Now, let's go back to our spider safari, where I went looking for spiders inside the Wildlife Trust's offices at Camborne with Brian Eversham. Right, so we've come inside. If you want to find spiders in your house, where's the best place to look? Generally in dark corners and up against the uh, edges of the ceilings. Found one. Those are some very long legs. Excellent. So that's a big, plump female of the long-legged cellar spider. 
they produce a very loose tangled web along the edges of the ceiling where it joins the wall. And her legs are incredibly long, so we're looking at a body less than a centimetre long, but individual legs, probably three or four centimetres. And her hunting technique is to hold potentially dangerous prey at arm's length and then dive in very rapidly, stab it with the fangs, give it an injection of very strong venom, and then back off again. And this time of year, her major food is probably those poor, lost, wandering male house spiders. She's big in terms of length, but she's quite dainty, whereas the house spiders are chunky boys. So she can take one of those on? Yeah, so their leg span will be twice hers. Their body size will probably be eight or ten times her body weight. But because she's got the long legs, strong silk and very strong venom, she will catch them, stab them, paralyse them, then wrap them up. And it's not unusual to see two or three males tied up in silk, dangling from the web, of a fairly tiny and delicate-looking female cellar spider. You say she's got strong venom. I'm fairly certain I have one living in my bedroom. Should I be worried? No, I've tried very hard and never persuaded one to bite me. Ah, she's doing her thing. Oh, oh, she's wiggling. Yeah, so the cellar spider has this technique of disappearing by spinning around rapidly in her web so you can't see where her body is. I've just prodded her with the handle of my net and she's now dangling from the underside of the web, spinning around in circles really fast, so she almost vanishes. You can just see the body moving in a circle, the legs are no longer visible. And if you were a predator, you wouldn't know where to go. And what kind of things are her predators? Yeah, mostly cleaners, I would think. (laughs) Uh, feather dusters perhaps out of doors then it would be birds and mammals yes the dreaded cleaner predator brian eversham there now speaking of spiders with strong venom we may be safe from deadly spiders here in the uk but that is certainly not the case in australia home to the funnel web spiders the most venomous spiders in the world But it turns out that the same venomous chemicals that can kill us if we get bitten are being developed into life-saving drugs. I spoke with Samantha Nixon from the University of Queensland to find out more about venom. It's made of thousands of different molecules. And what's really cool about the spider venom peptides is that they're really, really stable. So they can survive heat, they can survive, you know, acid. And so these very complex, very stable toxins really give spiders the evolutionary edge to become, you know, the most successful terrestrial predators on the planet. So we've just heard about the cellar spider having particularly nasty venom. What kind of spiders do you work on and how does their venom compare? I am really interested in tarantulas and the other spiders that I really focus on in my job are the world's deadliest spiders, the Australian funnel webs. It does this incredibly impressive threat display where it rears up on its back legs, flexing its fangs, and it even drips venom off the tips of its fangs. Oh, wow. It's not messing around. It's like, I have venom and I'm prepared to use it. It, it is really telling you, like, back off. This is not a fight that you want to get into. But if it's deadly, like, A small spider, I mean, small compared to a human, it's not going to be eating a human for breakfast. So why does it need such powerful venom? And, you know, that is such an interesting question. And it turns out to be a really interesting quirk of evolution. They spend most of their lives underground in a burrow where they're quite safe except that the males have to leave their burrows to go out and find female funnel web spiders. And so while they're out looking for the ladies, they're exposed. 
And it turns out that the males have evolved to produce very high amounts of what we call delta hexatoxin or delta atracotoxin. And this is the lethal toxin within the funnel web spiders. And it prevents our nervous system from turning off. So your muscles are constantly spasming and your lungs are trying to breathe, but they end up going into paralysis because there's nervous system overload. This toxin was probably evolved just to cause pain, but just because of very slight differences in a human nervous system, it ends up overloading our system so that we can't breathe anymore. And cats and dogs are actually mostly okay when they get bitten by funnel webs because their nervous system is just very slightly different. This all sounds horrendous. If I lived in Australia, I would try and stay as far away from funnel web spiders as possible. But you have them in your lab, am I right to say? Yes. Well, and I totally understand that because I actually was arachnophobic and I decided to join the research lab to force myself to get over my fear. I manage around about 100 spiders as well as scorpions and other sort of venomous animals. And I named them all, which helped me to get over my fear. (laughs) You can't be scared of um, Beyonce the tarantula or... Is Beyonce your favourite? Beyonce is definitely one of my favourites. What is it you're looking at when you're researching this venom? So our lab is broadly interested in how venoms have evolved, what they're made out of, and how we can use them to make new medicines and new technologies. So because spider venoms mostly target the nervous system, we do a lot of research into using spider venoms to make new medicines for um, neurological disorders, things like stroke, chronic pain, epilepsy. Actually, by studying a funnel web spider found in Queensland, Australia, my home state, we were able to find one toxin which actually protects the brain after a stroke and is able to help protect the heart after a heart attack. That toxin is called HI1A. It doesn't stop you from having a stroke or a heart attack, but it helps to slow down all of the death from the lack of oxygen. So we were able to rescue as much as 70% of the stroke size when we administered this peptide in rats, even eight hours after giving them a stroke. When you're studying these venoms to work out how you can extract useful chemicals from them, presumably you have to have a vial of venom to look at. So how on earth do you get the venom out of a spider? Uh, Very carefully (laughs) is the short answer. (laughs) So we call the process milking. And there's a couple of different ways that we go about it. So for the tarantulas, it's a little bit like how you would milk venom from a snake. Because we all know how to milk venom from a snake. That's something (laughs) we all do on a regular basis. I was just milking a snake for its venom last weekend. You know, just normal Friday night kind of activities. (laughs) I anesthetize the spider with a little bit of carbon dioxide gas just makes the spider a little bit sleepier and I basically will pick the spider up and then I position the spider over a little sort of test tube with a little bit of plastic over the top and I while the spider is still kind of asleep pull the fangs away from their body and get them to bite down through the plastic now as I said the spiders don't want to give up their venom if they don't have to so I give them a very small electric shock to the muscles over their fangs it doesn't hurt the spider it's just enough for the muscles to squeeze down and push the venom through the fang into the tube 
So that's the tarantulas, which I imagine are the easier ones. So what about the huntsman and the funnel webs? So the huntsman, I would have to say, are the trickiest ones, actually. I have to set up two tiny little pipette tips and then try to put each fang into a pipette tip. No, stop Um, it. (laughs) You're making this up. Uh, I wish I was making it up. I have to try to do it quickly because the huntsmans are fast and strong and they do not enjoy this process at all. Rather her than me, although absolutely fascinating, isn't it? That was Samantha Nixon. She is from the University of Queensland. Now, we've just heard about how you can milk a spider for its venom. And later, we will be hearing about the shocking mating habits of black widow spiders. But now, let's have the final part of our spider safari. And this time, spider superfan Brian and I were poking around in the bike sheds. So we're here just under the edge of the Wildlife Trust Bicycle Shelter in the back garden of the manor house at Camborne. Oh, right, so a medium-sized female house spider. Ooh. So lovely herringbone pattern down the middle of her back. So dark brown, four markings, about a centimetre long, probably four centimetre leg span when she starts running. These are the ones that we see scurrying across the floor, this species at least. That's right, so this I think is a female, so she'll be sitting here waiting for those wandering males to find her. The females remain hidden away, usually webs in the corners of rooms or behind bookcases. And the males go hunting for females. So it's only the males that you see scurrying across the bathroom floor when you go to the loo in the middle of the night? Almost always. And this time of year they should be adults. So if you've got the patience and the stamina to have a good look at them, then the males have large dangly structures in front of their face, a pair of things like boxing gloves called palps. And they're what they use both to signal to the female and actually during mating as well. So they can get in quick and mate without making themselves lunch instead of a partner. Ah, and we have a false widow spider, at last. (gasps) Huge, noble false widow. So this is the big one. It's almost red. Yeah, reddish brown, centimetre long. (gasps) Wow, Wow. she's shiny. And she's fast. Wow. So that was the noble false widow. Another recent colonist to Britain, been moving north over the last 10, 15 years. Globular abdomen shiny chestnut brown, almost conquer coloured and usually a pale marking on the top of the back that looks a little bit like a skull if you're so minded to imagine it and very fast moving when she needs to be as we just saw. So a, a real black widow, they have a red marking on the back right? On the underside, turn them over and you'd see a sort of hourglass shape in red on a dark background not found in Britain and still a very long way from colonising so not one to worry about. Today's beast would possibly give me a nip if I tried very hard to hold a manipulator but as you saw she's much keener to get out of the way than waste venom on something that isn't worth eating. The real life Spider-Man Brian Eversham who knows his spiders from the Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Northamptonshire Wildlife Trust. Well we've just heard about the false widow spider which has a more famous or should I say infamous cousin and that's the black widow spider and as the name suggests female black widow spiders don't tend to be married to their partners for very long until death does them part and here to talk us through the sex lives of these and other spiders Madian Andrade from the University of Toronto. Uh, Madian tell us first of all the nuts and bolts of spider reproduction what's it all about? 
Certainly, Chris. So spiders mate in a very different way. You just heard that males have structures called palps. They're kind of like boxing gloves, essentially at the tops of their heads. And those are actually what they used to mate with. And so they would actually climb onto a female in most species and then insert sort of a coil at the top of this boxing glove to transfer sperm. Now, one of the other strange things about it is that there's no direct connection between the place where they make their sperm and these boxing gloves. So they actually have to fill them up before they head off to try to mate with a female. When do they become sexually mature? I mean, how long do these spiders live for? And at what point can they begin to reproduce? So in black widows, the males are actually developed much more quickly and die much more quickly than females, even if they aren't successful at mating and aren't cannibalized. So males might take a couple of months to develop. Females might take three or four months. And so what you end up having is sort of quickly developing relatively small males. They're much smaller than the female, sometimes several hundred times less in terms of body weight. And the male may only live for a couple of weeks to a couple of months after he becomes sexually mature. It seems strange that they should end up being devoured or becoming prey or killed by the very partner they're trying to mate with. Why did that evolve in the first place? It it seems counterintuitive and counterproductive. So it's counterintuitive to us because we tend to think about collective action towards the same goal. But but in terms of most other organisms, males and females are each trying to reproduce successfully. Males are trying to typically have as many offspring as possible, which means mating with multiple females in many species. But for the female, especially for a large predatory carnivorous female who can produce more offspring with the more she eats, once she has sperm from a male... She doesn't necessarily need that male anymore. In these species, the male does not help with parental care or anything like that. So for female, she gets the sperm and then, well, there's a snack available on the web. So do they actually store sperm then and just use it when they need it? Yeah, that's the last part of the puzzle is that female black widows have two sperm storage organs and they can actually store sperm for two years after mating only once and continue to produce offspring throughout that time. If they're well fed, we're talking about 100 to 300 offspring every two weeks for two years after mating. Goodness. Can they top up their sperm reserves though? Because if another male comes along and and happens to be actually a better mating choice... You wouldn't want to have put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, wrong analogy, but you get what I'm saying. So will the female mate multiple times and therefore have the opportunity to replace what she's already picked up with something that's that's better genetic stock? Some females do do that. We don't know kind of their internal rules for that yet. But one of the things we do know about their mating behavior is that if the first male is not a very good quality, say, or does not court her for long enough, she will mate with him or copulate with him only once. And that means only one of her sperm storage organs is filled and the other one is available for any subsequent male who comes along who's actually better quality or invests more in in that courtship. And how does the female work out whether a male is, is good quality or not? We know that they can detect a lot about males through the web. So males are vibrating throughout the courtship. And they do that by plucking at the web with their palps or those, those boxing gloves, but also by flexing and extending their legs. So if you imagine a, a guitar string, it's like the male is plucking at those guitar strings that make up the web as they approach females. That can tell her things about his body size, about his energetic vigor. And then most importantly, we know that that signal is saying, I am not prey, I am not prey, I am not prey, at least not until they mate. And obviously it's in the male's interest to make sure that he does father as many offspring as possible and passes genes on to as many new spiders as he can. Is there anything he can do so that he does end up being the father and doesn't get pushed aside by a newcomer? From the species we've studied, 
courtship as an endurance competition that really shows the female, I am the best father for your offspring. So we know, for example, in a couple of the species, if a male doesn't court for at least an hour before even touching the female, the female is more likely to kill him before he completely fills up her sperm storage organs. So he will lose out in terms of paternity. In redback spiders, for example, which is an Australian black widow, males can court for up to eight hours before they actually successfully mate with the female. But the males who do that are more likely to mate twice and the female is less likely to mate with a rival who shows up later. That's some foreplay, isn't it? Is there anything else the male can do to avoid being eaten but nevertheless manage a successful mating? The other thing is that these males have actually evolved to mate with females before they become sexually mature, before the female does. So a female just before sexual maturity actually has intact organs underneath her exoskeleton. The male cuts that open and mates through that, and females are much less choosy when they're mated in that way. Sounds like quite a clever strategy. Thank you very much for filling us in all about the sexual proclivities of black widow spiders. That was Madian Andrade. Thank you. Isn't that just a wonderful image? But to clear your mind, let's end with our question of the week. Jacopo Russo is answering this space question from listener Rob. Is dark matter in large lumps or like grains of sand? In the classic novella The Little Prince, we encounter our eponymous hero in the middle of the Sahara Desert amongst massive sand dunes. He says, what is essential is invisible to the eye. Just like in the quote, dark matter is an invisible substance that is essential to the makeup and evolution of our universe. To answer Rob's question, I needed wisdom from someone who knows more. So I asked Francesca Day, assistant professor in physics at Durham University. Most physicists think dark matter exists as individual particles, so much, much smaller than grains of sand. We don't know the size of these dark matter particles, but in most theories, they would be over a thousand billion billion times lighter than a grain of sand. We're all familiar with common or normal matter. It's the stuff that makes up anything around us, like sand, but also rocks, cars, and even our bodies. We can see this stuff directly by shining light on it and seeing how it interacts. In contrast, dark matter is stuff that does not interact with light at all. We know it's there because it explains so much of the way our universe works, but we can't observe it directly. So why do physicists think dark matter stays at individual particles? I asked Jacques Pinard, a physicist from the University of Chicago. What current evidence tells us about dark matter is that it interacts very weakly through the electromagnetic force, which is a force that holds objects together in our everyday life. This is also the force holding together smaller objects in space, such as asteroids. But once we move beyond the scale of our everyday interactions, say to the size of planets or stars, the gravitational force becomes the dominant force holding these objects together. The implications for dark matter are that we would not expect lumps in the scale of asteroids or even grains of sands. Dark matter would exist as a cloud of particles which do not interact strongly enough to form clumps. So does this mean you cannot make sandcastles out of dark matter? Francesca Day has something to say about this. This doesn't mean that dark matter particles are spread out evenly throughout the universe because they do attract each other via gravity. This means that dark matter clumps together into dense regions. Galaxies like our own Milky Way form in these denser regions of dark matter. Wait, so can dark matter form clumps or not? Jacques Pienat clarifies. What is possible is that when there are large enough clumps of dark matter, 
like on the scale of stars, that the gravitational force becomes strong enough to form very large dark matter objects, analogous in some sense to how regular stars are formed out of clouds of hydrogen gas. Now, wouldn't the little prince be happy to learn that this invisible dark matter was essential to the formation of the very galaxy we all live in? Next week, we're going to run some juicy numbers to answer this question from listener Jody. Which has the lowest carbon footprint? A punnet of tomatoes from the supermarket or those grown in a grow bag in my garden? Well, that's food for thought, isn't it? We'll catch up with the solution next week. And if you'd like to speculate, you can join the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. And there we must park it for this week. Thanks to Sally, who put the programme together. And do tune in at the same time next week for COP26, the Global Climate Summit. We're covering it. We often think of climate change as something to worry about far into the future, but with well-developed cities speculating about relocating because of the direct repercussions of the climate crisis, it brings it all down to earth and a bit closer to home, doesn't it? Some of the regions under threat might just surprise you. You can find out what they are next time. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and from us here at The Naked Scientist, until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.